So I just learned that one of the consequences of leaving your Bible on the communion table before the service starts is that your pages get out of order. <laughs> so give me one second. David's right that a couple months ago, he was working on sermon series outlines and he decided that he wanted to do this Return to Love series for Easter. And so he asked me to preach Return to Love from Religion. And he said what he told you, which is that he wanted me to do it because I'm a young person, I'm a millennial, and he thought my perspective on this topic would be valuable, I guess. Uh, but truth be told, I think David asked me to do this, to preach on return to love from religion, because standing in front of a church and challenging the idea of religion is pretty risky, and if anyone's going to get fired over it, it should be the youth minister. <laughs> But really, really, I agreed to do this because the intersection of faith and religion is an incredibly important topic. And it's one that I've spent countless hours thinking about all the way back to high school. And it's because of all of that thought I've put into this that this was not an easy sermon for me to work on. I've got way too much going on in my head and it was a struggle to figure out what was the most important thing? There's a huge amount of tension for me in the conversation about religion. And so maybe, maybe you understand this a little bit, but that when you hear the word religion, different people respond differently to that. And so chances are, if you're over a certain age, I won't try to define what that age is, but if you're over a certain age, you hear return to love from religion, and you think, why? Religion's a good thing. It means that you're structured, you're traditional, you're reliable. It means you try to do good things. But chances are if you're under a certain age, you hear return to love from religion, and you think, I get that because religion is not a good thing. You immediately think of people being judgmental, critical, elitist. And so who's right and who's wrong? I think both sides are right and both sides are wrong. When we start evaluating religion, it creates a tension in the room. And so here I stand, a 29-year-old, with a foot in both worlds. I grew up in a family of ministers who practiced mostly old-school religion. But I also grew up in a generation with a worldview that does not value old-school religion. And so I have lived my entire life with a pretty deep love-hate relationship with this whole idea, with the whole idea of religion. I've seen firsthand how religion can be a good thing, but I've also seen how religion can be a bad thing. Religion is a good thing. It's at its best when it focuses our journey on our relationship with God. It narrows our focus just enough to give us some direction along the path. But religion starts wars. Religion puts rules over relationships. Religion condones slavery. Religion killed Jesus. 
Religion is political. Religion wants us to believe we have all the answers. Religion becomes the measuring stick for judging others. And so often when religion becomes a bad thing, it's because we've let the means become the end. We lose sight of the point, and instead we just try to do everything on our own. Now please don't misunderstand me. The purpose of this sermon is not for me to stand up here and to bash religion in the face of those of you who hold strongly to it. You can walk down the street and find plenty of 29-year-olds to do that. You could probably even go down to the youth center and find plenty of people to do that for you too. And the purpose of this sermon isn't for me to justify religion for those who struggle with it. There are plenty of apologetics books that have been written on that subject. The purpose of this sermon is for me to make sure that the point of it all doesn't get lost in the shuffle. The point, of course, is love. It's love through a relationship with God. And so when we lose sight of the point, what ends up happening is we kind of divide ourselves out into two groups. When we're on one side and we get too focused on religion, we grab our boxes and we stuff in our rituals and our customs and our traditions and our rules. We might even stick our favorite pew in there. And then we we take the parts of God that we like and we use those pieces to fill in the gaps. And our life motto becomes, I want to tell other people how to live. But when we're on the other side, and maybe we've seen the damage religion can do, we throw religion totally out the window and we become these people who are spiritual but not religious. There's no boxes here. Anything goes. I'll live my life, you live yours. There's very little accountability. And still, we're only pulling the parts of God that we like. And our motto on this side is, nobody better tell me how to live. Both sides are missing the point. In their own way, both sides are still trying to do things on their own. And so I'm, I'm going to pause for a second. I don't want you to hear me saying, oh, look at me, I'm in the middle, I've got it figured out, because I don't. I'm still working on all these things, and I'll be honest, and I'll say I gravitate towards the side spiritual but not religious. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we'll realize that we have a tendency to lean one way or the other. We all lose focus on the relationship with God. We all lose focus on the point, and the point is love. Lucky for us, though, life is not a bunch of yes or no choices. And so what do we do? We don't want to get stuck in the nuances of religion, but we can't afford to throw it all away either. The simple answer is that we look to Jesus. As he so often does, Jesus embodies what it looks like to live in this tension. He reminds us in Matthew that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. But Jesus also knows that the law exists to bring us closer to God. And so this opens the door for God's love in our lives and for us to show love in return. 
in situations where human life and real relationships are present, those things always trump the rule book for Jesus. When Jesus had the opportunity to heal the man with the withered hand, he didn't say, come back tomorrow, today's the Sabbath. He chooses to restore the person's livelihood. And when the four guys dig a hole in the roof to lower their paralyzed friend to Jesus, he doesn't say, we're really busy today, the line starts over there, and have your insurance card out to speed up the process. Right? Jesus stops what he's doing, and he gives the man a chance for a full life. When Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house and Martha is complaining that her sister isn't helping, Jesus doesn't condemn Mary for being lazy and he doesn't talk about ancient gender roles. Jesus praises Mary for choosing what is right. And I imagine he even invited Martha to join them. When Jesus tries to find a little quiet time for himself and God, but 5,000 people follow him to the middle of nowhere, he doesn't have his assistants say, send them away, you know, there's something else on my schedule. Matthew says that he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick, and then he teaches them, and then he feeds them. In John 13... Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All the laws for the Jewish people who are hanging out with Jesus are to be interpreted and evaluated through this lens. And the same is true for us. Jesus always chooses love. That's the point. Love wins every time. That, in my opinion, is why we're here. The point of religion is love, both God's love for us and our love for God and others. And if our focus is on anything else, then we're missing the point. I asked Dave to sing that John Foreman song because it's challenging and because it's scriptural. I don't know if you were able to catch all the, the lyrics, but it says, I hate all your show and pretense the hypocrisy of your praise, the hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. This is, this is God talking. Away with your noisy worship. Away with your noisy hymns. I stop up my ears when you're singing them. I hate all your show. And then the chorus, instead, let there be a flood of justice, an endless procession of righteous living, Instead, let there be a flood of justice instead of a show. And in the second verse, John Foreman makes more modern and says, Your eyes are closed when you're praying. You sing right along with the band. <clears throat> you shine up your shoes for services, but there's blood on your hands. 
You've turned your back on the homeless and the ones who don't fit in your plan. Quit playing religion games. There's blood on your hands. And then he does the chorus again. On the surface, when you hear this song, it's really harsh. And it's really heavy. And it's probably not one you sing along to in your car, right? But when you remember that the first verse and the chorus come straight out of Isaiah chapter 1, things change a little bit. In this passage, the people are presenting their offerings to God and they're singing and they're going through all of their religious practices perfectly. And still God says, I don't want this. The people had reached a point where their religious expressions had become routine. Their focus was no longer on God. They served only themselves, and the whole thing had become a show. God says, I hate all your show. Instead, let there be a flood of justice, an endless procession of righteous living. The people in the passage missed the point of the sacrifices. They missed the point of worship. They missed the point of religion. Now, of course, John Foreman didn't put the song together to say that worship is bad or that looking nice on Sundays is bad or anything like that. It's a commentary on the attitude that we bring. It's a commentary on missing the point. And so why are we here? We should be here to fall more and more in love with God. Love is the whole point. It's not hard to discover what Jesus had at the top of his priority list. It's love. If religion doesn't make us more loving, we've missed it. The story of the Good Samaritan comes to mind. And now all of you are thinking, well, well duh, right? But the part of the story that, makes, that strikes me for this conversation happens before Jesus actually gets into the parable itself. Before Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, a lawyer asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you read in Scripture? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then the cool part is Jesus says back to him, yeah, do that. Do that and you will live. And then like lawyers do, like we all do, he starts pushing back and wants loopholes, right? But Jesus tells one of the greatest stories ever told. But the whole point is love. We've got to stop complicating things by clinging so tightly to religion and arguing about the details and procedures. And we've got to return to love. And at the same time, we can't run to the other end of the spectrum and throw God out the window just because we don't like religion. We've got to return to love. And so returning to love from religion looks like the way we do baptism here. Until November, when I got here, I had been Baptist my entire life. And there's a million kinds of Baptists in the world. I won't get into all of that. But most of them and many, many other traditions would say, yeah, sure, you can be baptized, 
but it has to be done by someone who's ordained in our tradition. Or they'd say, yeah, you can totally join our church, but we're going to have to rebaptize you because you were first baptized in a different tradition and it doesn't count here. Right? I don't know who made those rules, but I don't think God made those rules. So return to love from religion looks like a husband baptizing his wife. And it makes me think of Ashley baptizing her daughter Annie on Christmas Eve and crying tears of joy the entire time because their love for each other and their love for God triumphs over any religious rules we could possibly make up. Return to love from religion looks like inviting every person in this room, regardless of where you are on the journey, to participate in communion because this is God's table and we don't get to make the rules. God's love is for everyone and so everyone is invited to the table. Return to love from religion looks like our Theology on Tap group that meets at Mellow Mushroom to talk about deep and important questions of faith where people in their 20s and people in their 70s and people in between talk about things that matter and laugh together and learn from each other as equals. It might also be the only place in the universe where that many people can go two hours without looking at their phones. <laughs> Return to love from religion looks like over 325 of you leaving the comfortable walls of the church to go serve in the community last week for Week of Love. Return to love from religion looks like a church full of Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians and Independents and whoever else all worshiping together in an election year. Return to love from religion looks like men and women sharing leadership roles, fulfilling God's call to preach, and taking equal responsibility for the life of the church. Return to love from religion looks like people who love each other regardless of age, social class, skin color, or sexual orientation. And it looks like people who aren't afraid of differences but are willing to learn from them and celebrate them. Return to love from religion looks like a church that's willing to admit when it's wrong and is then willing to grow together. Return to love from religion looks like a pastor who cares more about you and the conversation he's having with you than he does about being on time to worship most weeks. <laughs> it's supposed to be a good thing. Returning to love from religion is about the church, yes, but it's also very personal. And so, just as an example, I've always loved theology and philosophy. I, I like complicated ideas and breaking them down like puzzle pieces and looking at them and putting them back together. You can ask my wife. I even do this deconstruction, reconstruction thing with movies, and it drives her nuts. I'll, I'll lean over and I'll say, did you notice the subtle change in the way they're using colors as the movie progresses? That's a pretty cool symbol for the unfolding plot line as the main character seeks fulfillment in her ultimate destiny. And, and she'll lean back over and say, this is a Pixar movie, shut up and enjoy it. I bring that up to say that I tend to take theology and philosophy into more than those, just those places. I take it to a lot of areas of my life. And so I've been doing student ministry in some form for over eight years. And I remember one of the first lessons I ever wrote myself 
for our youth at the time. They wanted to talk about salvation. Well, lucky them, I can talk theology of salvation all day long. And so I came, I had notes on different atonement theories. I had uh, all these breakdowns of key verses. I even brought some books with me in case any of them wanted further study on the topic. <laughs> Turns out that's not really what the youth were looking for. I would have been better off just sticking to the point. And the point of salvation and the point of religion is love. So returning to love from religion in your personal life might look like a reminder to keep it simple. It might also look like holding back on jumping into that Facebook debate. It might also look like congratulating fans of the rival team after a big win. I said that in the first service and Melvin gave me the death stare. <laughs> Returning to love from religion might look like giving yourself a little bit of grace when you miss a day or two or 20 in your Bible reading plan. Return to love from religion might look like creating a safe space for dialogue between your friends and family by admitting that you have doubts and struggles of your own. Our church's mission statement is living out the love of Christ by embracing people where they are. And if you look at it on the website, it's even got an exclamation point, so you know it's true. But this is our mission statement because we believe that love is the whole point. We're not perfect, and we never will be, but we try really hard to make real love the priority. And so if religious structure is helpful for you, or if it's not, don't lose sight of the point. The point of it all is love.